Thank you for uh, that and all of the music this morning from the wonderful prelude all the way through. What a blessing. You want your Bibles open to Second Chronicles chapter 6, a book of the Bible we don't often preach from. Second Chronicles in the Old Testament chapter 6 and verse 28 will be the beginning. It will be on the screen in just a moment. Before uh, I read the text, I want to lead us in a time of prayer. Uh, under the auspices of Future Leadership Foundation, a team of pastors, uh, most friends of mine, uh, are in Ukraine right now on a teaching and preaching mission working at the seminary in Lviv where I was last year. So I want to invite us to pray for them, for their safety and, and for their effective ministry there. And as you recall, our church has a partnership with a church planting effort in eastern Ukraine. And so we continue to pray for our partner congregation and our partner uh, pastor, uh, whose name we're not allowed to share or put on the website because of all of the tensions in Ukraine, but God knows and, and uh, he'll hear our prayer. Let's join our hearts in a time of prayer. Our God, we thank you for uh, the wonderful experience of worship and for this rich privilege of prayer being ushered into your presence. And we bring to you our confession of sin, our acknowledgement of brokenness, our hunger and longing to be better, to be different, to be transformed by the power of Christ, and to simply acknowledge that sometimes we just need to rest in you. And may this worship provide all of those cleansing, refreshing, resting experiences. We thank you for all who've gone before us to pave the way uh, of faith and to pave the way for this church. Help us as a people of faith to hold on to the things in life that count and to the things in life that endure. We ask you, God, today to bless those in our congregation who are ill, uh, physical illness, mental illness, relational struggles, job problems, financial stresses. We pray that you'll bless our church's witness in this community. We pray that today all over the world you might bless those who serve in military service. We pray that you will bless refugees everywhere victimized by war, we pray that you will care for the homeless and the loveless, and we pray that today you might bless your world with peace. We pray particularly for the team in Ukraine, that you might bless them and strengthen them and bless our sister congregation, our partner church and church planting there, and bless the pastor. We pray for our partners in Kenya and South Dakota and all of the various mission points over the earth today. May your name be honored. And God, as we turn our attention to sacred scripture, to hear your words, and as we hear that grand story of scripture, help us to find our place in your word and today to listen carefully to what you have for us. And may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. I'm going to read from Second Chronicles chapter 6, beginning in verse 28. Uh, Solomon has just become king, and he is dedicating the temple, and this is a part of his prayer. I invite you to stand because it's a marvelous prayer and a marvelous passage of Scripture that talks to us about our, the national hopes and dreams uh, of the people of God. And as we think about this sermon series of uh, uh, God's great story, what the Bible is all about, this gives us a picture of an important period in uh, the Bible's story and our story. Verse 28, chapter 6, 
Second Chronicles. If there is a famine in the land, if there is plague, blight, mildew, locust, or caterpillar, if their enemies besiege them in any of the settlements of the lands, whatever suffering, whatever sickness there is, whatever prayer, whatever plea from any individual or from all your people Israel, all knowing that their own suffering and their own sorrows so that they stretch out their hands toward this house, may you hear from heaven, your dwelling place, forgive and render to all whose heart you know according to all their ways. For only you know the human heart. Thus may they fear you and walk in your ways all the days that they live in the land that you gave to our ancestors. Likewise, when foreigners who are not of your people Israel come from a distant land because of your great name and your mighty hand, and your outstretched arm, when they come and pray toward this house, may you hear from heaven your dwelling place and do whatever the foreigners ask of you in order that all the peoples of the earth may know your name and fear you as do your people Israel so that they may know that your name has been invoked on this house that I have built. If your people go out to battle against their enemies by whatever way you shall send them, and they pray to you toward this city that you have chosen and the house that I have built for your name, then hear from heaven their prayer and their plea and maintain their cause. If they sin against you, for there is no one who does not sin, and you are angry with them and give them to an enemy so that they are carried away captive to a land far or near, then if they come to their senses in the land to which they have been taken captive, and repent, and plead with you in the land of their captivity, saying, We have sinned and have done wrong. We have acted wickedly. If they repent with all their heart and soul in the land of their captivity, to which they were taken captive, and pray toward their land, which you gave to their ancestors, the city that you have chosen, and the house that I have built for your name, then hear from heaven your dwelling place their prayer and their pleas. Maintain their cause and forgive your people who have sinned against you. Now, O oh my God, let your eyes be open and your ears attentive to prayer from this place. Now rise up, O oh Lord God, and go to your resting place. And you and the ark of your might, let your priests, O oh Lord God, be clothed with salvation. Let your faithful rejoice in your goodness. O Lord God, do not reject your anointed one. Remember your steadfast love for your servant David. Amen. May God bless us as we are seated. How does a nation die? How does a nation die? Uh, one answer that I would give to that question is that a nation dies usually slowly. And in many instances, a nation dies imperceptibly. It's not noticed in one grand moment. It's sort of a, an attrition that happens over time. I like a quote by Eric Fromm, who was a sociologist and psychologist. He said, a person sits in front of a bad TV program and doesn't know he's bored. He joins the rat race of commerce, where personal worth is measured in terms of market values and is not aware of his anxiety. Ulcers speak louder than words. Humans are transformed into a thing, a producer, 
a consumer, an idolater. Profound insight from a sociologist about what it's like for a nation to sort of be numbed slowly and just without realizing it starting to crumble. And I want you to just ponder that quote for just a moment. Sitting in front of a bad TV program, not knowing he's bored, joining the rat race of commerce, suddenly his life is measured by market values, by things that humans measure. And pretty soon he's turned into a consumer, uh, a unit, an object of, uh, of, of taking in goods and services, and finally an idolater. How does a nation die? It's happened before, it happens all the time. The uh, sermon series that we're in right now is, uh, is uh, looking at God's great master story. What is the Bible all about? God's great narrative and where do I fit in it? And uh, we're going to look at the nation Israel and how that nation had a, had a great and glorious era uh, a, a, great, a great time of obedience and, and uh, uh, for a brief shining moment where they had it all together and then sort of slowly disintegrated and started crumbling and, and all of the pieces sort of just fell down. And, and as we've done in the past, I want to do a little chronology to help you, uh, to help us remember the big picture. What I'm trying to do every sermon is help you to see where this particular day's topic fits in that grand story so we see how it all fits together. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the, the patriarchs, uh, Joseph, the son of Jacob, from about 2000 to 750 B.C. Uh, it's a little misty there as to exact time period. Uh, then the Exodus, Moses leading the people out of Egyptian slavery, somewhere between 15 and uh, 1250 B.C., and then that time of wandering where the people of God wandered for 40 years and followed by moving into the land and conquest of the land of Canaan and the period of Judges where they were a loose confederation of 12 tribes, no centralized government. They all sort of were just taking care of their own business around 1250 to 1020 B.C. And then a united monarchy where they come under kingship, Saul and then David in their golden era, and then Solomon from 1020 to 922 B.C., and then civil war and divided monarchy uh, around 720 or 922, and then the northern kingdom is led captive in the 720s B.C., and then the southern kingdom, Jerusalem, falls about 586 B.C. In just a few moments, I've basically covered 1,500 years. I mean, look at that sweep of history where the Old Testament Bible story from Genesis 12 through the end of the Old Testament basically carries us. And what I want you to focus on is right there in the middle, the united monarchy. In our story this morning, David has died. Solomon, his son, has, be, has assumed the throne, has come to, to be crowned king. The temple has been dedicated, and at the dedication, this marvelous prayer is prayed as Solomon verbalizes the hopes and dreams of a nation. And he, he says something very profound in verse 30. He says, God, you're the only one who knows the human heart. Every nation should remember that. Every church should remember that. Every individual should remember that. Only God knows the human heart. And God does know the human heart. And then Solomon says something that's sort of a 
foreshadowing of what is to come. He says, if, if we sin, down in verse 36, if we sin, and there's no one who doesn't sin, sort of like Romans 3.23, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. If we sin, that means to step out of the path that God has for us, then we pray that you'll forgive. Here's, here's Solomon saying, you know, we, it might be that we end up in captivity. Again, a foreshadowing of what's going to happen. But he's praying so earnestly for his people and verbalizing the hopes and dreams of a nation. Well, I got bad news for you. Solomon prayed a beautiful prayer, but things didn't go so well. Beginning with Solomon's kingdom and all of the other kings that followed and all of that, that chronology from Solomon on down through the end of the kingdom, things went south, literally, for the people of God. Things went bad because of their disobedient hearts. Now, the book of Judges, the books of First and Second Kings, and the books of First and Second Chronicles rehearse that whole kingdom time, uh, the judges and the, the time of the kings. And there's a cycle that's mentioned when you read the Old Testament and you sit down and read it through in one year or in, over a short period of time. You see the cycle repeated over and over again by the, by the people of God. Uh, and I want you to imagine the face of a large clock up here as I try to picture for you this cycle that's repeated over and over again in the First Testament of Scripture. Starting at the top at 12 o'clock, uh, there is a time of blessings and favor of God on the people of Israel. And it's a wonderful time. But then, over about 3 o'clock, the nation Israel begins to uh, take it for granted. They become apathetic and arrogant. They begin to think, you know, these blessings are our God. God's not God. These blessings are our God. And they begin to worship themselves, and they begin to think they don't need God. So over around 3 o'clock, there's this apathy and arrogance. And then down at 6 o'clock on the clock... Is, is where the judgment of God comes, where they, they, God simply removes protection from them and they are allowed to suffer consequences. God's judgment on the nation, the lowest point. And then because of that, there'll be bitter tears and repentance as a nation. That would be maybe 9 o'clock on the, on the, uh, on the clock's dial. Uh, they will repent, genuinely return to the Lord, and then back to 12 o'clock high a time of favor and blessings of God. And things would go along pretty good for a little while, and then because of the favor and blessings of God, they get careless and more apathy and arrogance, and then more judgment, and then repentance, and then new favor and blessing from God, and round and round and round and round, over and over and over again. And you might recognize that cycle. That's not just a national cycle. Do you ever have those cycles where you experience God's favor and blessings and then you get careless and apathetic and arrogant and decide you can do it yourself and then God's judgment comes on your life in any number of ways, mostly consequences. We just get what we go after, which isn't very good. And then we're at that bottom six o'clock and then we repent and then we experience that fresh work of God and then we, 
then, then we get careless again and think, how could this ever happen again? I've been here before, and round and round. The nation Israel is a classic story of uh, not only personal sins, but social sins and social injustice. Um, I want to I describe for you what the minor prophets and some of the major prophets, especially the 8th century B.C. prophets, Isaiah, Amos, Micah, I want to I share with you some of their insights and snapshots of what culture was like in, uh, in ancient Israel and Judah. And I want you to listen carefully and see if you hear any parallels with any other nation that you know anything about. Okay? I mean, just pretend. They worshipped luxury. They had ivory paneling in their homes and ivory couches. You know, this is like thousands of years ago. Plenty of wine. All the while, poverty and suffering and oppression were happening to the poor. There was greed among the wealthy. They were grabbing land and they were foreclosing on the poor every time they had an opportunity. Dishonest politicians were taking bribes and kickbacks. Usury was prevalent, exorbitant interest rates, keeping the poor in their place. Riots became prevalent. And class warfare developed as the hatred between the social classes intensified. Sexual sin was everywhere. Violence was in the street to the point where the young of the nation were being killed off in a reckless sort of shootout kind of mentality. Sound like any country you know? And where was the church in Isaiah and Amos's and Micah's day? Well, the church was doing its thing. It was having its holy huddle every week in the building. They were meeting and saying all the God words, making themselves feel good about God. But it was veneer. It was show, it was sham, it was surface. They weren't dealing with personal sins, nor were they dealing with corporate sins and social injustice. They were going through their pretty motions of religion, doing their religious holy huddle, and then going back to their sins during the week. Israel was drowning in isms, she was drowning in materialism, making things God above God. She was drowning in nationalism, putting nation above God. She was drowning in militarism, believing that every solution had a military solution rather than trusting in God's strength. And she was drowning in legalism, a religion defined by keeping rules and an outward self-righteousness that did not touch the heart and did not transform the soul. Materialism, nationalism, militarism, 
legalism, drowning in isms. Now, all the time uh, in these months that I've been preparing for this uh, sermon series, and particularly this sermon, I've been haunted by a statement, a quote by Peter Story, who was a, a South African pastor and bishop. South Africa, that knows plenty about social injustice with apartheid and, and all of the race hatred that, that uh, was in bygone times. Peter Story made an insightful comment about the Western world and the, particularly the United States. He said, the United States is so full of good people And he said they can remain good because they let their institutions do their sinning for them. We let our institutions do our sinning for us. I thought it might get quiet in here when I quoted him. I put that in and took it out about three times. tough to hear, isn't it? And all of this is important because it was God's design that the nation Israel be a light to all the other nations. It was, it was God's plan not only that Israel get her act together for her own sake, but get her act together so that she could point the way to God for other nations. Did you, did you hear that statement that Solomon prayed in verse 32? He said, he said, Likewise, when foreigners who are not of your people Israel come from a distant land because of your great name. I like the way some translators translate this. Foreigners who are attracted to your great name. Just remember, like like Jesus said, when I am lifted up in John 12, I will draw all people to me. I will attract people to me. Solomon says, when foreigners are attracted to your great name because of the way we're living... See, it's God's design that God's world be attracted to him because of the way his church is living. He said, then people will know, verse 32, in order that all the peoples of the earth may know your name and fear you. That's God's plan. That we are to be the light that we are to be God's way. And every church and every Christian should, should just stop and reflect. You know, are we attracting people to God? By the way, we need to be careful when we're studying Old Testament because the, the analogy of how God deals with Israel what God expects of Israel, uh, though the lessons about that nation's failure and our nation's failures are there, the principles are there, the real correlation in the Old Testament and New Testament is not the nation Israel and the nation United States. The United States is not mentioned in Scripture. The correlation is the nation Israel and the church. Read 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 9 and 10. We are the royal priesthood, the holy nation, the church. So the correlation is the nation Israel, that's the way God deals with the nation Israel is the way God 
deals with the church and what God expected of Israel, God expects of the church. And it's the church that needs to be attracting people to the great name of God. There's a great lesson from the topography and the geography of the Holy Land, uh, and it's an old illustration, but uh, it, it bears repeating particularly uh, at this particular time. I put a map of the Holy Land uh, on the screen, and just to remind you of sort of the topography as well as the geography, uh, you'll see over to the left in the blue is the Mediterranean Sea, and that long sort of chartreuse strip of land is Canaan or Holy Land, the Holy Land of Scripture. And there's a blue sort of bulb shape uh, in the shape of a light bulb that is the Sea of Galilee. And then 104 miles to the south is the Dead Sea or the Salt Sea. 104 miles separate those two bodies of water, yet they could not be more different. Some of you have been to the Holy Land and you know this. The Sea of Galilee in the north is fresh water, teeming with life and fish. And all through hundreds and hundreds of years and many centuries, Fishermen have made a living harvesting the life out of that beautiful sea. The uh, snow comes down off of Mount Hermon up in, uh, up in the northern region and melts down and comes down into the Sea of Galilee and it's, it's lush greenery all around it, uh, uh, a lot of vegetation all around the Sea of Galilee. But you get 104 miles south and the Dead Sea couldn't be more different. It's salt water. It's, it's yucky. It's uh, sort of the the Holy Land's dump water. It's, it's just there. And, and uh, not only is, is there no life in the water, uh, the area around is arid and sandy and, and, and desolate and dry and sort of a forsaken feeling. And there's a reason for the two distinctive kinds of water. You see, the Sea of Galilee both receives water from the north and gives it to the south. So the water's always stirred. It's always receiving, but also always giving, so that the water stays fresh. The salt sea is always receiving, period. It never gives. There's no place for it to go. And so the water becomes fetid. It becomes not very pleasant. And the analogy holds that when people or churches are always receiving and never giving, the water grows putrid. The water of our lives only stays fresh if it's stirred and we're always giving. So God's called us to be living and giving his will, receiving and sharing. And God has called us to repentance. Whatever that means for us personally, whatever that means for us as a church, whatever that means to us nationally, God is always loving his people enough to tell us the truth. He's always loving his people enough to call us to repentance. So I want to ask you where you are on that clock dial. Are you in God's favor? Are you arrogant and apathetic? Are you under judgment? 
Are you ready to repent and come back and get in His favor? Let's pray.